You are listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast with Ecce Dinucci and Christopher Bierhase. Ciao everybody, welcome back to the Ethics for Medics podcast and we're going to talk about, wait for it, abortion uh, and we've invited an expert all the way from the United States of America, Olivia Spalletta is a medical anthropologist and she will talk with Christopher and me about abortion and maybe just a bit of background why about abortion as you will remember we're based in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen and there's just been a debate in Denmark about changing legislation around abortion and we thought that it would make a lot of sense to use that opportunity to talk about abortion rights um, and obviously all three of us fully endorse abortion rights that's not why we're doing this um, we just want to talk about the ethics of abortion and just in the usual way that we do on this podcast it's not just about content uh, and the normative principles it's also about how we learn to analyze arguments through this kind of cases and today's case is happens to be a really controversial one um, abortion um, I'll, um, I'll maybe start by I noticed that people are silent. Do you want to sort of say something, Olivia, so that our listeners can hear your voice? Yeah, I'm very excited to be here and honored to be a guest. Uh, I don't know that I'm an expert on abortion, but uh, maybe... I thought you were an expert on everything. <laughs> uh, maybe healthcare in Denmark and some of the important issues about disability in Denmark. Those, those might be better explanations. And Christopher is there. He's just been shy today. <laughs> yeah. For now, let's see. Let's see where this takes us. No, we agreed with, with Olivia and Christopher that I would just start by saying a few things about this suggested uh, change of legislation. So um, this is also exactly the way in which we use uh, abortion as a case study at the medical school. So it's particularly relevant for the medical students out there. So the way uh, abortion legislation is in Denmark today is as follows. Until week 12 of pregnancy, you can get a termination, no questions asked. And please, Christopher and Olivia, you know a lot more about the Danish healthcare system, so you correct me if I get this wrong. But my understanding is that for now, with the current system, until week 12, you can get a termination, no questions asked. And, um, and that's a really interesting system for pedagogical reasons when, when we teach it at the medical school, because then what happens in, in, the, in the period after week 12 is that there is a committee that uh, assesses basically your situations and your reasons for, for asking for an abortion, that committee almost always says yes, but, uh, but it's still a committee decision. So, so we use that at the medical school to say, okay, so basically until week 12, you have a right to an abortion. It's not clear that between week 12 and week 22, you have a right to an abortion if a committee has to say yes. So you have the right to ask for one, but you basically need a good enough reason. So that's the difference between the first and the second period. Until week 12, you don't need any reasons. And after week 12, you need a good enough reason. And then after week 22nd, if I understand this correctly, then you can no longer get an abortion apart from, you know, for serious medical reasons. Is that correct, Olivia? I think so, yeah. And, and so, so week 20, uh, 22... In, in Denmark is considered kind of like the viability threshold, if, if people are familiar mm -hmm. with, with that kind of talk. And so this is the current system. 
and um, and then the suggestion is to move from to move the kind of sort of week 12 uh, uh, line to week 18 that basically you would have a right to an abortion no questions asked uh, until week 18 and then you wouldn't move the viability threshold so the, the committee period would be shorter it would be between week 18 and week 22 and everything else would stay the same with the addition that there is another proposed change that I think is also interesting for our podcast because we talk a lot about consent and also guardianship and all these issues then now if you are between 15 and 18 you can get an abortion only with parental consent and the suggestion would be to allow 15 to 18 year olds to get an abortion without parental consent so those are the those are the two uh, the two proposed changes legislation it might be confusing for listeners because they all have both have to do with the number 18 right <laughs> but just to add to the the current situation you can still get the abortion without asking your parent but you need to ask a certain committee if you are between 15 and 18 right you are not forced to ask your parents at the okay. moment so if your if your parents are, are not willing the committee can still allow allow you to have it basically like steps in and sort of yeah or you simply don't want to involve them oh in right it, because right? you might not want them to even know so but it, so it's still the change from you know someone else taking the decision and granted de facto to what's what you're saying that the uh, the women has uh, have the autonomy to choose by themselves without asking the committee if they're between 15 and 18. And I guess one of the reasons why we think that's interesting from an ethical point of view, again, we're not debating abortion rights as such here. We're already fully on board with that. But it's this idea that this system, whether it's week 12 and week 18, does that mean that one has a right to an abortion only if nobody has a right to ask any questions? Or can we talk of a right to an abortion even if you have to offer what our listeners now know is a justification? Because basically that's what the Danish system is asking, right? After Now after week 12 and possibly in the future after week 18, you need a justification in order to get an abortion. Is that compatible with having an absolute right to a termination, the fact that you need a good reason? Does one ever need a good reason for an abortion? What do you think about that, Olivia? About wh whether one needs a good reason for an abortion? Um, I think that, I mean, I would broaden the context here to say that reproductive choices happen, they unfold under a set of conditions that are much broader than whether or not you have access to the procedure. Um, so women's or people pregnant people's justification for accessing abortion can be very very different depending on where they are in the world and so there's a specific set of conditions in denmark that would be considered a justification for accessing abortion and this change from 12 weeks to 18 weeks changes um, what kind of information you can include in that decision making process because before week 12 you have less information about the pregnancy so the the change here is about what you're allowed to act on. This is interesting. Can you, can you give an example of that? So are you thinking in terms of the kind of tests that would normally be carried out between week 12 and 18? Yeah. And those would then become part of the decision-making while before they weren't. Is that the idea? Before they were part of the decision-making, and I think this is one of the things that maybe motivates this change, is that if you have a kind of a diagnosis around week 12 and it's too late for you to access abortion just without giving a justification, 
then you can apply for an abortion and it's almost always given, for instance, in the case of Down syndrome. So it's a little bit of a rubber stamp approval. Um, and right now the change would be almost no change at all because they already give a rubber stamp approval for abortion uh, for in the case of Down syndrome. So there's, um, there's not a, a, an actually a big shift there, but except for the shift in that you, have to, you no longer have to ask. This is interesting from a philosophical point of view. I don't know about the, the medical perspective. Maybe we can hear Christopher in a second. But from a philosophical point of view, it's very interesting because it sounds like the change is on principle. Right? So it sounds like the suggestion is to move from 12 to 18. It probably we would get just as many abortions because the committees always say yes. So that's not the real issue. The real issue is that as a matter of principle, we can only say that you have a right to an abortion if you don't have to ask anybody, if you don't need anybody's approval, if you don't need anybody's, you know, stamp on it. And uh, so that the change is on principle rather than on based on any practicalities or new empirical evidence or, or new guidelines or anything like that. Or, Christopher, can you see any medical reasons for moving from 12 to 18? Mm, not really. I'm not sure, actually. I would say here it's a discussion that's not that often happening in the GP setting, I would say, because often you would refer the patient straight to the gynecologist or the hospital. Again, they have the right to do so, so it's not really much for up for discussion anyway, if, even if I wanted to discuss it, right? So I... But that's I'm a good, a, yeah. but can I just say that that's a very good practical instantiation of the no questions asked. Namely, someone comes to you, asks for an abortion, and you say, sure, here's your referral. Yeah. No questions asked. So the, the policy does work. The question is just how far into the pregnancy we should apply that policy. And can I ask, uh, I don't know if this is going too philosophical on this, but can I ask whether either of you thinks that that can never be a wrong reason? For having an abortion? You just ask in plenum? <laughs> or, yeah, I don't know who wants to go first. I understand that that might be uh, a provocative question. Well, I to would ask. Defi I'll ask it again since it's so. It's nope. so, <laughs> so, nope. so the question is whether either of you, Olivia and Christopher, think whether there can ever be a wrong reason or a bad reason for wanting an abortion. I would not answer the question at the moment, but support the question because I've been <laughs> wondering the same thing about, um, you know, when is the fetus developed enough not to have an abortion, right? And I think very often in these uh, discussions that question is not really accepted or this dilemma or this, this hardcore threshold for getting the abortion or not really. But that's a, just another way to formulate your question, right, Etio? But then, I mean, before we hear Olivia, may maybe I can try to answer that question. I mean, one concrete way of addressing that question is viability. And it sounds like Denmark sets viability at 22 weeks. And one of the justifications that is normally given for viability is would a premature fetus, uh, unborn baby, whatever, survive outside the uterus at 22 weeks and that would be one way of setting viability but uh, but i don't know that i agree with you that, that that viability should be should play such a big role in the debate but but let's see what olivia thinks i feel really lucky because these are not the questions that anthropologists 
are trained to answer, so I can't give you an answer on whether there's a wrong reason to want an abortion. I can say that when I look at the materials that are produced around this decision-making in Denmark, one reason that they, one wrong reason for asking for an abortion, for instance, is the sex of the baby. That there is, one of the things they consider is whether people will sex select a fetus. Um, and they think of that as wrong. And there are a lot of places in the world where, where people think of that as wrong. One thing that is less at stake in Denmark is, um, or at least publicly less at stake, is whether or not the fetus is affected by a condition like Down syndrome or another chromosomal condition. That's less um, problematic in Denmark, more problematic in other places. So in other places in the world, it would be wrong to seek an abortion because of a chromosomal difference. In Denmark, it is sort of par for the course. That's really interesting that you put it that way because can I can I just make a methodological remark there? Because you were trying to sort of distance yourself from this kind of normative talk, <laughs> but but actually gave us some really good examples, right? Yeah. So you know the the Down syndrome example, uh, but 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 I think even more powerful this idea that for example if you're systematically terminating girls mm-hmm. or or fetuses that will you know, grow to, to be girls, mm-hmm. that there is a problem there. Yeah. But I think, and the, the reason why I really like that case, I mean, it's it's a disturbing practice, but but, but, but the reason why I like it as a, as a case for discussion is that actually it's easy to make the argument there that this is not an abortion issue, right? So the problem with that is, say, the patriarchy or sexism or discrimination, but it's not abortion, right? So what makes it wrong, if it is, it's the sexism in it or the discrimination in it. Abortion can still be an absolute right. It's just that we shouldn't exercise that right in sexist or discriminatory or patriarchal ways. And I think that way we can we can have both things. We can hang on to an absolute right to an abortion and the idea that there can never be a wrong reason for an abortion and still say, well, we're not in favor of those kind of systematic practices because they're an expression of you know, a biased, discriminatory, sexist, patriarchal worldview. Yeah, and I think in that case, it's really then important to look at the conditions of reproduction. And in Denmark, one thing that's really important is that the state is very highly trusted. So one thing that pregnant people will reflect on, and our colleague Laura Heinsen has explored this in both her master's work and her PhD, um, if something is offered from the state, then it is seen as something that is uh, social and usually a moral good, something that people accept. The state wouldn't be offering it if it weren't important. So it signals something like prenatal screening and testing, signals that it is something that you should pay attention to, that it's important information and meaningful information. So in that, in this context, moving the, the boundary for abortion from 12 to 18 weeks is also an approval of the idea that, okay, we think that this is a procedure that you ought to be able to have up until 18 weeks without without justification. Um, so I think that's an important thing to consider about the Danish case, that simply moving the boundary for abortion also tells you something about whether the state thinks it's a good idea. And that's important to Danish people, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean... Regarding a discussion as this one, it's important for the listeners maybe to reconsider what we have discussed before about the whole ontology distinctions, right? Because it's I think it's important and people can easily disagree on the wrong 
premises if if you have different ideas of what is actually the fetus is it a a child is it just a pieces of cells is is the choice of uh, of the gender or the sex of the fetus actually a matter of uh, societal discourses regarding uh, gender biases and so on and also what is the role of the state right so if if people are not aware of how they actually consider these different entities in the discussion you can easily disagree or misunderstand each other and did the listeners maybe notice a pattern here as usual the medic in the room is <laughs> making the more philosophical points because i think that's absolutely true at least historically and it reminds me that maybe i should have provided a little intro to the kind of ethics of abortion uh, given that that's what we're talking about so i think christopher is absolutely right that up until very recently at least for sort of kind of philosophical debates so up until maybe the 70s the crucial question on the ethics of abortion was whether or not the fetus counted as a person and uh, and then the sort of the dilemma there the kind of pro-choice pro-life dilemma was personhood and and people were having this kind of ontological arguments about personhood and then comes along uh, uh, Julie Thompson and makes a really convincing argument in the early 70s that basically personhood is irrelevant to abortion because if you've become pregnant involuntarily then even if the fetus is a person you have the right to terminate the fetus um, based on basically uh, at least the condition and, and then the argument gets a bit more complicated i don't want to get into that uh, i think that's too complex for uh, for this episode but uh, but there was a, at least historically and, and, and i don't normally talk historically on, on philosophical issues but but i think we can in this case given uh, um, what Christopher was saying about the ontology of the fetus, at least historically, basically, we did a lot of sort of debates around personhood up until the 70s to then recognize that actually maybe whether or not the fetus was a person was irrelevant to the ethics of abortion. And um, so, 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 so and, and, but, but thanks as, as, as always, Christopher, for reminding us how to use and reminding our listeners how to use the tools from previous episodes. For example, the episode about ontology and epistemology in this kind of issues. Um, if I can make a, a, a comment, I don't know, just to give us maybe a little bit of a sort of a thinking time. Uh, you know, we, d we normally don't prepare that much for this kind of <laughs> for these kind of conversations. And I think listeners can can tell that. But now I'm thinking, wow, abortion is such a big one <laughs> that I'm, uh, I'm slightly myself intimidated by the by the size of um the size of, of this kind of questions um so but i can go yeah. continue with the from the ontology to the something else because i noticed a few days ago or like a week ago that some of the danish politicians in the government uh, were very furious or at least disagree highly with the uh, danish newspaper showing some pictures of the fetus in the different ages uh -huh. which i think is also an interesting perspective on the whole ontology what is it actually we are looking at and how come that they did not want the newspapers to show these pictures right and one of the argument was that it could you know change the the idea of what it is to to have an abortion 
which is also showing something back to what we are talking about with the consequentialism and deontology and so on, right? Is it is it about the right or is it about the consequences that follows regarding uh, or in relation to what it is we actually believe we are we are seeing or that we are understanding regarding the problem, right? This reminds me of something that I think I read a couple of years ago, and I think that it's worth reflecting on. I mean, I think maybe listeners can judge from our accents. I mean, it's obvious that I'm Italian, and then, you know, Christopher is Danish, and Olivia, even though she <laughs> proudly carries an Italian surname, Spalletta, she's from the US. And um, and I think, I mean, obviously, in, in where we come from, maybe especially Olivia, you and I, abortion is a lot more controversial mm -hmm. than in Denmark. And I remember when, I think, a few years ago, this this very minor Danish party that hasn't made it into parliament for ages, which is, I think they're called the Christian Democrats. Yeah. And, and so they haven't been represented in parliament in a very long time. They only get like 1% or something. So it's very much on the fringes of Danish politics. And even they stopped as Christians objecting to abortion rights. And then Denmark could proudly announce there is nobody in the political spectrum that even disputes abortion rights or the ethics of abortion in Denmark, right? And this is in comparison to, say, you know, a very polarized debate around abortion in the US and obviously um, a situation in Italy that maybe I should describe as the debate around the sort of ethics and philosophy of abortion in Italy is not that different than the one that you would find in other places in Europe. What is different in Italy, and we talk about this Christopher, you and I talk about this often, is the gap between theory and practice, right? So there's been abortion rights, quite progressive abortion rights in Italy since the 70s, but because a lot of the hospitals are either run or have dependencies on the Vatican, it's not a very smart move as a medic in Italy to perform abortions. The smart career move as a medical doctor in Italy is to be a conscientious objector on abortion, right? which results in the fact that it's actually practically kind of difficult to find a medic that will help you, right? Because the pressure. So, and, and, and you might think, oh, wait, wait, why is he going that far now and telling us these sort of anecdotes about Italy and stuff like that? I guess well, the, the point I'm trying to make is that even in very progressive Denmark on some of these social issues, you see these debates playing themselves out in other ways, right? So, for example, I, I take it that, you know, this remarks on, oh, let's not show the fetuses on the newspapers or this kind of stuff, is another way of playing the kind of abortion debate on a, on a different uh, sphere. And uh, so I think it sort of, it keeps coming back, even in Denmark. Um, and I guess, I mean, one of the things we could talk about is, uh, is why. And maybe Denmark takes itself to be more progressive than it really is. Well, Olivia, and you're yeah. an expert on on <laughs> Denmark, basically. You know, you're like, you're studying the Danes, right? I study the Danes, yeah, which puts me in a really uncomfortable position a lot of the time. But I think this is a really interesting example, Christopher, of uh, showing showing uh, a fetus visually. It also reminds me of a case in the U.S. where it was very controversial in the in the South before the uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned. There were a lot of places in the South uh, that tried to, without tinkering with access, tried to prevent women from obtaining abortions in other ways. 
And one of the ways they did that was to have wait times, and another way they did that was to force pregnant people to look at an ultrasound image of the fetus, which is, is incredibly difficult for someone who has decided to terminate a pregnancy. And so, um, so that, that debate unfolded in the U.S. Of course, the conditions are much different now. But in Denmark, I think it's very interesting that the politicians would have this response, this, this is not okay to show pregnant people. But at the same time, the very foundation, the justification they give for extending access to abortion is that women ought to have the right to decide something and that they have the capacity to decide something. That's something, of course, I agree with. <laughs> but saying then that we shouldn't show these images seems to contradict, in a way, this idea of pregnant people as self-determined and informed and capable of, of making these decisions. I think capable is not the right word, but yeah. And it's funny you are bringing up these two cases, the whole thing with the watching the fetus and also the waiting time, because we have talked about the waiting time before as well in one of the programs, that if Ezio was uh, younger than 25 years, he actually had to wait six months before he could have a vasectomy. So we are using the same kind of uh, technique mm -hmm. in Denmark for those things that the state... To put people off, basically. To put things people off. Things that we sort of allow but don't really endorse. Yeah. That's a really so interesting thing. So again, in this thing. case, we all agree that, okay, here, we, to be honest, here we don't like this technique for women in the U.S. because we already have, you know, a different position in which this is arguing against or this is fighting against the position, the the ethical position that we are holding right mm -hmm. but we are actually using the same kind of methods within the Danish healthcare sector for other things for the same argument that they would use in the US saying oh but these people don't know better or they might you know uh, they might change their mind so we are just helping them by doing this so it's very paternalistic just to to bring up it's the know, same time two techniques concepts. used paternalistic reasons uh, but for very different uh, outcomes and the listeners i'm sure didn't miss that christopher is now bringing up my vasectomy at every episode <laughs> i wonder why he's doing that um no comment but um but no i think i think it's really interesting this but but i don't know if we're going too far and if we're if we're out of time but this this reflection on the difference between allowing something from the point of view of the state of the healthcare system allowing it as opposed to endorsing it right and i think you're absolutely right christopher that this kind of paternalistic attitudes and then it doesn't really matter whether it's vasectomies or abortions, even though obviously they, they you know, they have <laughs> something in common, vasectomies and abortion, right? Um, but uh, are ways of basically suggesting to the public that even though you might have a right to it, we're not absolutely certain that that's the right thing to do, and um, and that's I I would have I would have said problematic both for abortions and vasectomies, but obviously for social reasons, maybe even more problematic in the case of abortion than it is in the case of vasectomies. And I completely understand, Christopher, that it was just an analogy. You weren't suggesting that anything like that happens in Denmark for abortion. It's just, uh, uh, it's just that what might happen for abortion in the US mm -hmm. happens for, um, for vasectomies in Denmark. And then, and then, I mean, if we wanna, if we wanna find uh, some common ground, I guess, one of the things that we might talk in a, about in a, in, a, in a future episode is obviously uh, sterilization for women, because I think that happens on steroids when it's women asking for sterilization, sort of this kind of like 
not trusting their judgment, this kind of challenging, this but you will change your mind, this but are you sure? So this kind of waiting time is used against women in in multiple uh, in multiple cases. But does does that sound uh, does that sound plausible to you, Olivia? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think the the change in the in the guidelines here or the law here, you could see it as a as a withdrawal or a turning down of the paternalism. And I, I don't know that that is the right interpretation in this case. I think that there's another kind of power we could apply here. We could think of this as a pastoral power, you know, a shepherding power to, um, to guide people into the decisions that, that we want them to make. So in this case, you know, we talked at the very beginning about what is the reason that this, this, this barriers or this border is being shifted. It's been 50 years. There's lots of different reasons to consider it. But one is that the number of abortions or the, the way that people are applying for late abortions um, we're keeping track of. And so one argument is that 600 people a year or 800 people a year apply and only a very small percentage of them don't actually get access, which means that in most cases the ethics board and the pregnant people are in agreement about what constitutes a justification for a late abortion. There's 20 years of data on this now. And what that tells the state is people, we have trained people, or people agree with us, whichever way you want to interpret it, about what justifies an abortion in this case. So we can withdraw and trust people to follow the same guidelines that we set up before. We just don't need to be asked anymore. That's a really interesting argument. So then the idea would be basically that these committees have served the function, you know, almost the kind of communicative function of educating the public yes. about how to go around the ethics of abortion. And now the fact that there is consistency mm -hmm. in the decision-making shows that, is evidence of that. And that's is how now we can sort of, we can trust them. Is evidence that these systems are aligned. But what, what I think this rule doesn't take into account is that people who are pregnant are also going through a system uh, that already exists, where they're encountering all sorts of different people like um, midwives and genetic counselors who are telling them what they can expect to have access to. So without this having to seek permission anymore, it changes two things. One is how that negotiation is going to go down because there's no longer a need to ask. So if a pregnant person, for instance, gets the news that they're having a girl instead of a boy or a boy instead of a girl and they didn't want that, no one can say to them anymore, okay, but, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not good enough. Um, and the other thing is that um, the, the having to ask permission distributed the responsibility for this decision. So it had a function where people could be um, sort of uh, think of the state as, as co-making this decision with them. And for a lot of people, that was a relief. But I think it, it's also considered problematic by a lot of people, especially because there's a rubber stamp for um, fetuses that have a diagnosis of a disease. So I understand the latter point, mm -hmm. but the former point, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it makes me, makes me wonder. So are you kind of suggesting, Olivia, that basically having this committee decision also offered or currently offers and might no longer then offer a form of support in the sharing of the burden of responsibility, but also support in terms of that maybe you will, in the new system, encounter fewer people that can help you along or that can provide you guidance. Because if that's what you're suggesting, you're almost saying maybe that's an argument against changing the system? I don't, I don't know. I think 
what is not considered in the reports that I have read is what it will now be like to have to make this decision and what is not offered. So now um, this decision essentially would say, we trust pregnant people to make this decision all by themselves up until week 18. Now, maybe it's not really all by themselves, but are there any additional supports that are offered? Is there bereavement leave for people? Do they have a choice? Do they actually have a choice in what kind of abortion is performed? They don't right now. It's um, uh, the, the abortions that are performed right now are abortions where you actually have to deliver the fetus. So there's not a lot of flexibility in this rule. And those are things that are not really paid attention to, which are really, really important if you sort of open up the, the barrier, but then don't offer this other kind of extra support. I think it's some very interesting points, Olivia. Maybe, you know, the whole fact that you need to ask the committee is also what creates the problem that people feel, the women feel that they, you know, uh, that they need to share the the burden of doing the abortion do you know what i mean that maybe now when it, it turns uh, legal just to make the decision themselves they don't they already feel like uh, by default that it's all right and therefore they don't need to share the 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 choice with others if if that's so all at the moment with the 12 month uh, 12 weeks deadline right Does it make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see how people respond to this. Because I think so. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, because, I mean, I've already talked about Laura Heinsohn's work. One thing she discussed with people is that um, for some people it's a shared decision-making, but for the people who are sitting on these ethics councils, they say our justification comes from the request. So these people are essentially pointing fingers at each other saying, well, the Ethics Council says it's okay, and they're trained to make these decisions. And the Ethics Council is saying, well, people know what they want, and they should be self-determined, so we'll give them what they want. This is getting more interesting, this discussion, than I was expecting in a way, because I thought, like, come on, you know, abortion, we all agree, you know, absolute right, no questions asked, and stuff like that. But now things are getting getting kind of tricky so 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 the, the following thought kind of crossed my mind as you two were discussing this which was like right so we we make it so simple to talk about an individual right to x right as opposed to for example a committee having to give you authorization or even just confirming your preference or whatever right but now i'm starting to think look because we know that those decisions are not make made in a vacuum Right? So a pregnant person contemplating an abortion will talk to friends, families, maybe the partner, maybe their parents, and, and, and things like that. So there will be influences. And those influences are often possibly not necessarily in the best interest of the pregnant person. They might not be as well informed. They not might be as impartial as maybe an expert committee. D do you see what I'm trying to say? That obviously we think an expert committee is incompatible with a right as we understand it theoretically. But in practice, the expert committee might be much more impartial, much more on the side of supporting a reasonable decision by the pregnant person. And actually, if we leave the pregnant person alone with the decision, and I'm kind of interpreting your discussion, I'm not trying to push this point. It's just a reflection that was sort of provoked by what you guys were discussing, that basically, If we leave the person alone with the decision, yes, on paper, then they have a right. But they may, might be much easier to be negatively affected, manipulated by 
the people are around them, especially depending on the kind of environment, community, background in which they might. Um, so, so, so almost like I guess the sort of the committee protects the right. Is that? And I know that this is like I'm contradicting myself because I've argued throughout this episode that the committee is incompatible <laughs> with the right. But I'm trying to embrace the sort of the complexity of the real world as a philosopher that normally just well actually it's no longer an armchair it's uh, it's olivia i can uh, i can reveal this much we've moved from a round table to armchairs but one of us to is on lounge, a sofa lounge area yeah so it's a sofa philosopher not an armchair philosopher and then an armchair anthropologist and an armchair <laughs> medic sorry this is way too important and and controversial and whatever delicate a topic well i think you kind. you might have a point it you but still you know these additional people you are ref you're talking about that could influence the choice of the woman uh, the woman's choice you could also argue that they still have had the chance before you know before there was just two levels right first you have to be influenced by the people around you and then the committee so but i think we risk fetishizing the choice here there is no such thing as a pure choice a choice that is not influenced by something else other than what the pregnant person um, desires from a place outside of culture the, the all of these um, experiences uh, influence what a person decides um, and i think really importantly in denmark where the state is a trusted partner and a trusted decision-making partner, it signals important things when they change guidelines. And that's why I think it's very important to have conversations like these about what happens to decision-making processes when the state moves guidelines or moves the barrier for when women can access or pregnant people can access these things and changes the, the ethics council. Can I do something? I think we need to we need to finish. It's been, it's been fascinating. But can I do something that we never do and that I think Christopher will not like? Can I ask? you and myself to finish by saying yes or no are you in favor of the change from 12 to 18 weeks no questions asked olivia are you in favor of moving the no questions Ooh. asked from 12 to 18 to weeks oh <laughs> sorry wait, it's, 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 i thought it was an easy one so i'll just <laughs> say i'm in favor absolutely go wild please change it olivia <laughs> one of the things I love about living in Denmark is that there is open public discussion about these things. And I think this means that a lot of different perspectives are, are brought into the conversation. I think that um, I think that more conversation is warranted, especially around the issue of disability, which is what I thought I would talk about today and didn't talk about at all. Um, I think that if the if it's moved, if the border is moved, there should also be some kind of um, research about what it means for people to go through a new process. And I think that that is one thing that, that doesn't happen so often in Denmark, is that guidelines are changed, people have really good ideas, and then there's very little reflection on what are the consequences of, of essentially the Ethics Council, you could think of it as a resource. What is the consequence of taking that resource away and not replacing it with other resources for pregnant people's decision-making and experience of accessing abortion? This is what happens if you ask a yes or no question to an anthropologist. <laughs> but yes, you will come back on the show. Christopher, yes or no to 18 weeks? I'm not going to answer that question either. Oh, come <laughs> on! Well, I cannot 
disinvite Christopher <laughs> from the show. It's his show. So that's why he gets away with not answering. Okay, thanks for listening. Ciao.